chapter 16. Turn me down, if you would, please, Jonathan. John chapter 16. And I want to just look at verse 33 further and draw some, I trust, some very practical and helpful lessons from the words of Scripture. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now just looking particularly for our consideration today, in the world you shall have tribulation. And asking the question and seeking to find the answer from the scriptures as to why does God allow trials and trouble and tribulation in the life of the Christian? Why, biblically, does he tell us why it will happen? And he will allow it to happen. I mean, from our point of view, it would seem much more convenient if we all got the right to heaven on the magic carpet, you know, without a bump. A nice, smooth, miraculous transition from the pains of earth into the glories that wait for us above in the Father's house. Now, it's not the way it goes. And you ask the question, well... Why not? I sought to look through the scriptures on this particularly, and I see three very clear ways, one of which only probably we will be able to look at this morning. In the first place, the coming of trial, tribulation, and trouble into the life of the believer, the scripture clearly teaches that it is to refine our faith, refine it, or strengthen it, if you like, yes, refine it, yes. And the idea is to purify your faith. You may not realize it, but your faith and mine has got a lot of mixture in it, a fair bit of impurities that weaken it and indeed spoil it from functioning and achieving the things that it should to the capacity that it could. So you've got, number one, refining or purifying our faith is the reason why God allows the troubles of the world to impact upon us and indeed, in some cases, he deliberately brings them to us. Which is what we saw in John 15 in just passing. The troubles come in order that we might be pruned as a a branch in the vine. What for that? Why is that? So that we can bring forth more fruit. And there's a lot of painful experiences in the pruning hand of God on the life of his child as he seeks to conform us more into the image of his son. So you've got, there's the refining and purifying of your faith, and then there is the sharp blade of the pruning knife of the hand of God as he reaches out into the life of his child and seeks to produce in it, to do away with all the things that just bring show and do not glorify his name or the image of himself and the reproduction of the Lord Jesus Christ in the life of his believer, of the believer. And then you go to Hebrews 12, and that same father with the pruning knife in his hand, who is interested in you producing more fruit, he does at times scourge. You see, a father corrects his son. He sees a child growing, and he thinks he must be taught, he must be educated. And indeed, whom he loves, it says, the Lord loves, he actually chastens 
and so often uses those painful experiences which in this case he is directly allowed to impact on your life because there is something there that he is wishing to teach you, to educate you, to make you more like the family. That's the point. You want your son to represent the family. God likes his children to be like his own son and rightly represent the image in the family. So in the first one, it's there's the refining and the purifying of your faith. And the second one, there's the heavenly father as the pruning hand is placed upon us, pruning us as branches in the vine. And then as heavenly father, the same heavenly father, scourging us, indeed correcting us, wanting to not punish us with some sort of penalty for doing wrong, but teaching us whatever means is necessary so that we might be educated and changed and conformed into the image of the family. In the last two, the pruning knife and the scourging, it's the situation where God, as it were, comes into your life and he puts his hand directly on you for a reason. Now be careful when he does that and don't faint, don't get all discouraged when that happens and don't despise it when he does. You know, when God puts his hands on you, you've got to stop, all right? And I tell you this, when God's put his hand on you, as he will if you want to go on for the Lord, he will do it. He means to see you changed. And if you've had the hand of God put on you, then learn the lesson from what's come upon you so that you can be changed. Be like Jacob, you know? Remember at Peniel, where he wrestled face to face with the angel? Wrestled with that angel? And he says, I've seen God face to face and my life has been preserved. And if you'd have known Jacob and seen him when he was started at Peniel, you say, well, there's Jacob and something's going on between him and the hand of his God. And afterwards, you'd have seen him come away from Peniel and he was limping, limping, limping. He was a different man, you see. He'd had an encounter with God. God has put his hand on him and he'd learned the lesson of what God meant him to learn at that time. Now, the Lord does mean us to learn lessons. And don't, you know, despise the chastening of the Lord that, in other words, say, oh, well, phew, that's over. Let's get on with life. No, no. You need to, we go on our way, a changed person. I can't ever, I always remember the line from the ancient mariner. You remember the young man that was <coughs> going off and going to have a great time and enjoy himself, and then the old sailor came up to him and he said, he got a lesson for you, young man, and he told him a dreadful story. The poet is so good in the way he puts it, he said, and he held him with his glittering eye. The young man who wanted to get off and have a good time was held. He couldn't spellbound by this magical old man that had something to say to him. And at the end of it all, when he'd heard the story, it says of the young man, he went on his way, a sadder but a wiser man. Now, it's a bit like that as you go on in life through life's experiences and you learn something of the hand of God on you. You're, we'll say, a sadder, but you're a wiser man. And that's the whole point of it. Jacob was a different man after that as he limped for he had an encounter with God and he was learning to lean. I see the picture in it so beautifully. But to go back to the first one, the refining and the purifying of our faith. Turn please to 1 Peter. <coughs> Turn to 1 Peter. And there you have it set out very clearly, very, very clearly. In particularly verses 6 and 7, <clears throat> all right? But, but, I'm going to start at verse 3 because I want you to get the note of glory that starts it all off. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at the triumph, look at the glory, look at the glow that's in those verses. Look at the hope. He's got words like blessing for the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, abundant mercy, a living hope, an inheritance incorruptible undefiled, reserved in heaven for you, kept by the power of God through faith to salvation, ready to reveal in the last time. Now that's the way you start. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Well, of course you do. Though, he says, for a season, it seems necessary that you are in heaviness. You are distressed through many troubles that are coming upon you. Now start it this way. <clears throat> That's how you approach every trial. <clears throat> That's the aspect that you take in every trial. You are looking past it and beyond it to the glory that is yet to come. That's exactly what's happening here. Get the right aspect on it because you're going to pass through manifold temptations. There's going to be many temptations, many in number, many trials, many troubles, but there's also going to be many different types. You know, you just think you've got life summed up, don't you, sometimes? And then, wham, it comes out of left field and the devil's got another invention in order to attack you. So you'll have many times and in many, many types. But the whole thing that sustains you as you enter into those darker tunnels of life, the thing that sustains you is the realisation of what lies ahead, the end of your faith, the final glorious outcome. That's exactly how the Lord Jesus taught it in the upper room. He never told them in the world ye shall have tribulation in verse 1 of chapter 14. In verse 1 of chapter 14, what did he tell them about? In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And he showed them the thing that mattered. It's the world that lies ahead and the glory yet to come. This sustains us in the darkest passages of life down here and the manifold temptations and trials that will come upon us. See, this is the story of the Christian life. On the one hand, you are facing trouble and darkness and trials and distressed. But on the other hand, you're rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory at the wondrous things which lie ahead. Now that's how you live, is that we're a foot in both camps and you soldier on in the cause of God in the world in which we are left. Now it says here that the trial of your faith, here, let me, verse 6, sorry, wherein you greatly rejoice though now, watch it for a season, yeah. If needs be, it would seem that it is necessary, and it certainly happens, you are in distress or heaviness <coughs> through many temptations. You might think it best that we're always rejoicing, but the point is this, that these troubles that come, are there and they will come, they must needs be. What does that mean? Well, number one, it means it's inevitable. It's totally inevitable. The world we live in, in chaos, a fallen world, where Satan is just going crazy, as it were, men and women are his dupes and his pawns. And in a world where there is greed and there is lust and there is envy, there is avarice, there is violence, there is every perverse thing, Romans chapter 1. 
is a world which in and of itself produces trouble after trouble after trouble. It gets to the point where mankind is at war with themselves. Creation's at war with itself. We're part of that fallen creation. So therefore, it is inevitable that those troubles will impact upon us despite anything we may think or we might, might wish. Now, it also, it's more than that. It's not just inevitable, but these troubles are necessary. Necessary. And verse 7 tells us why the trials are necessary. So that the testing or proving or purifying of your faith, that's what they're necessary for. Because through these circumstances and incidences, the whole point is to remove things from our faith that are mixed in there that shouldn't be there. And I'm going to look at at least five things that you'll find are mixed in your faith that you have to get rid of in order to be have a pure faith that's strong and steadfast and constantly gives you that hope. So that's the whole point of it. The things in it which will devalue it. It will. They don't belong there. They, they weaken the whole thing. And he says, what it's all about, these men of many inevitable and necessary temptations, they are necessary because your faith must be tried. Now notice this, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried by fire, that it might be found, this is your faith might be found, unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see how he goes straight up to the future again, the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, get this get some of the sense of this verse. It's beautiful. You've got the trial of your faith, and your faith is much more precious to you. We'll see that in a moment. It's much more precious possession than if you had actually got gold that had been completely purified. Which would you rather have? A faith or pure bars of gold. He said, well, whatever you think of your pure bars of gold, the fact is the faith you've got is more valuable than that, even though that has been refined and refined and refined to the peak of its purity. The faith that you've got is more precious even than that. And in a coming day, this faith, once it has been purified through the purpose of God in your life and circumstances, that will end up being to the praise and honor and glory of yourself in the, present, in the future day at the judgment seat of Christ. Don't go to the judgment seat with your bars of gold. Get it? They won't get there anyway. <laughs> it's not the point of it. You go there with your faith that's been purified as you've lived your life with the Lord and in the presence of God. And you've gone through the trials like Abraham went through the trials. And he was a man of great faith. And we follow in the footsteps of our father Abraham, the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. Now, I don't know. I was reading, and it was a lovely example here. Gold is actually purified twice or tested twice. Tested twice. In the first time, the testing is to get rid of the impurities. Now, we could go through the story of heating it up, you know, and making it liquid, and all the scum comes to the top and skimming it off and skimming it off and skimming it off as the heat of the fire does its vigorous work because you're trying to get rid of the impurities. All right, we'll say that's all over. Okay, finito. What happens then to the gold? Well, actually, it's tested again. What do you mean? When you... They do, they want to work out its value. Is it 24 carat? Or is it only 21 carat? 
Or is it running 18 or 9 carat, you see? 24 is the best you can get it. It's the most valuable thing of all. There are two testings. One to get rid of its impurities and the other to see its quality at the end of it. You get that? Now it's 24 carat. That's the bestest, if you like. That's the one we can't all afford. We all like to buy jewellery, gold. Well, you end up with 9 carat. Looks all right, but it's it's not got the same value. Now your faith, that precious thing that you have got as a gift from God, goes through the two testings. The first one is to get rid of those impurities and it needs the heat of the fire. The second one is to assess at the end of that just the value, the quality, the extent of the purity which exists within your faith. So you're getting it tested as it were in the coming day in the presence of the Lord. In the presence of the Lord, he assesses that faith of yours. And if I could put it this way so that you can understand it, is it 24 carat? Uh, did we only get to 21 or 22 carat or 18 carat or still we, do we still blunder along at 9 carat, you see? Because in that coming day, as we have responded to the hand of God and if we have been changed from glory into glory, so in that wonderful, merciful and mysterious way, the master as he sits at the judgment seat, he will assess the life and to some he may even say, well done, Thou good and faithful servant. Now you and I are living through troubles in this world and God is watching how we are handling them and how what effect they're having on us and what changes they are making to us and how much more we're seeking after the Lord and after his word and seeing the changing from glory into glory, seeing the likeness of the family starting to come out, seeing the the beauty of Jesus being reproduced in you and he says, I'll assess that in a coming day and I'll give that soul honour Praise and glory. You see the two testings. One for purification and one for final assessment in the coming day. Now, I want to look then at our faith a bit further. I want you... You've got to see just how important it is to have a faith that is pure and strong. Faith. Think about it. Faith is indeed one of the believers most, it is one of the believers most precious, precious possessions, all right? He talks about having like precious faith. I want you to get to appreciate that value. I mean, Peter keeps talking about precious things, doesn't he? He talks about having exceeding great and precious promises, doesn't he? He talks about redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, blood of infinite value and then he talks about the Lord Jesus he's elect the cornerstone he's elect and precious precious in the building you see and then he says to the believers unto you who believe he is precious he is precious all right so you have that precious Christ and I speak carefully not foolishly not just emotionally it goes further than that it says actually the translation is unto you who believe is the preciousness is the preciousness Well, we've got this faith, one of the great precious possessions. And I want to get it clear. Faith is the thing. It's the means. It's the thing which enables us to receive all the blessings of God. Number one. It enables me to receive all the blessings that God would give. It's that channel of faith. That means by which 
a loving God full of the bounties of his grace can pour down every blessing that's in his heart as a father to me as one of his children. It comes, all of them come to me by faith. Faith enables us to receive the blessings of God and faith enables us to live and work for God. Now you put all that together, no wonder faith's precious. It enables you to receive the blessings of the heart of God. It enables you to persevere and to labor and to work for God. So faith is obviously something more than just a simple sort of believing. We'll come to that later on. You see, we receive salvation. We We were justified by faith, saved by faith. Sanctification. We are sanctified by the faith in him. Victory over the world. This is the victory over the world. Even our faith. Get it? Living and working for God. How is it done? It's done by faith. How do I know? Hebrews chapter 11. Look at all those men and women and what they did. It's a startling story of what they did. It says about who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. I like that one because I can't see myself in all those other roles exactly. But look, out of weakness was made strong, valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead again. Others were tortured not accepting deliverance. They might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment, stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain by the sword, wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, and they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in the dens and the caves of the earth. They obtained this good report, how? Through faith. That's how they did, that was the means by which this could be done. Now you're suddenly getting the idea that faith is a, a precious possession. And it's more than just a simple intellectual assent and believing or agreeing to something. The scripture puts it far greater than that. You see, you've got God here and in his heart is all the fullness of his blessings. He wants to give it to man. Here you have mankind over here and there's a great gulf that's fixed, a chasm between, alienated from God. A mind that's at its enmity with God. Man looks at God and in his foolishness he sees God as his enemy. And he cannot receive the things of God. You see, God's got them to give them, but he cannot receive them. And then what do you need? There's no connection there. There's no connecting link. There is no channel. He's lost in unbelief, mankind fallen. There is no channel by down which God can pour the blessings of his grace and the fullness of his salvation. And faith is that connecting link. Faith is the channel down which God pours his blessing. Faith is the ability to believe in God. We say, very often and rightly so, faith is my belief in God. It goes further than that. All right, the devil believes and trembles. That's not saving faith. That's just he knows something's true. Faith is my ability to believe in God completely, thereby enabling my soul to receive all the blessings of his salvation. Faith itself, get it? Gives me the ability to receive from God, to believe in God, to rely on God, to trust in God, to lean on God and to obey God. 
Take faith out of that equation, there will be no receiving, no believing, no relying, no trusting, no leaning, and no obeying. This is what the Bible teaches. I'm not making this up about faith. I'm not adding to it. The Bible says this, faith by faith this, by faith that, by faith something else. So it's a very big thing to have. It's a precious possession. This is the saving faith, which is the gift of God. This is what we have got as believers. We've got faith that comes from above, giving us the ability to receive and to believe. The, The saving faith, the gift of God, which opens our eyes that were so blind, that softens our hearts that were so hard, that bends our will that is so stubborn and enlightens our mind which is so darkened. And I'm saying saving faith because it's more than just ordinary belief. Yeah? We use faith quite loosely uh, generally in life, you know. You're trying to encourage one of your children to to, uh, do something and maybe perform at something. Oh, come on, I've got faith in you. Oh, I really am. No, come on, get on with it. I've got faith in you. What do you mean? Well, you've assessed the child. You know they're not out of their depths. And you know full well that they've got the capacity. You're just encouraging. You say, I've got faith in you. I believe you can do it. You believe for good reasons. And then we use silly ideas like, you know, you jump in the bus and you say, oh, well, I have got faith in the driver to take me to my destination. Now, what you really mean is you believe quite plainly that he can get you there. Well, of course you do. He's wearing a uniform. He's been driving a bus for years, hasn't he? He knows how to drive a bus better than you do. And let's face it, you've probably been on the bus 25,000 times, if you, if you know what I mean. But before you, thousands of people. So on the law of the odds and the evens and the chances and the so on, the law of averages, you'll get there all right. And of course you've got a belief that he will. This is more than that. This is Abraham who, against hope, believed in hope. Against, in the face of the impossible, he believed in the possible. This is Abraham's faith who saw him who was invisible. This is the ability that the Christian has to reach out, as it were, and to see God as if he were just actually there. Who is convinced of what is illogical to mankind, but is the substance of all that you might hope for, the conviction. You see the unseen as if it's seeable. You know the unknown as if it's knowable. This is faith. This is the ability from God given by God, to believe in God and receive the blessings of God. And now that faith needs to grow in strength. That's what we're talking about. And amazingly, and it needs to be purified. And amazingly, what Peter is teaching here, these temptations, these trials, these difficult experiences, right, are absolutely necessary. For God uses those trials and those afflictions and those troubles to purify your faith, to refine it and to strengthen it. Right. What do you think could be some of the impurities mixed in your faith? And I thought about this. And I thought, well, it's no good starting with me. (laughs) Or no good starting with humanity. Let's go to the scriptures and see what it says. And the first one that will be a problem in your faith is fear. All right? Because of who and what we are mixed in our faith, muddled up in it, there will be a problem of fear. Fear... And there's doubt and there's unbelief. They're the first three. Fear, doubt, unbelief. They, needed to be, they need to be burnt out, as it were. Right? Now, fear is a major problem because, actually, fear without faith at all leads a soul into being shut out of the eternal city. 
and it shut out of heaven. Outside of the fearful and the unbelieving, all right? So it's, it's quite something. Now, you take, for instance, the situation, and we're going to go biblical, stick to what the scripture says in Matthew, is it 8, I think, 26? And the, the storm that came down on the Sea of Galilee, right? And you can see the picture. The Lord said to the disciples, you get into the boat, we'll go to the other side. He got in with them, he slept on the pillow, and they sailed across the lake, and the storm came with incredible satanic ferocity. That's what happened there. And the boat was just rocked from stem to stern. These disciples who were hardened sailors and knew that lake like the back of their hand really felt that that boat was going to sink. Right? And they were sure of it, as a matter of fact. They were quite terrified of the situation. Now, get the picture. In that boat is the whole enterprise of God, the disciples and the master. The whole of God's activity on earth was in one boat, and the devil knew it, and he attacked it, right? With a sure aim of tipping the whole thing over and ending the program of God. And so they are absolutely terrified, and naturally speaking, absolutely so. And so they wake the Lord up, who stands there, and he rebukes the wind, and he rebukes the wave. He's, he rebukes it with a, be still, muzzle yourself. And of course it goes down. And then he turns to the disciples, and he said, oh, look, come on, it'll be all right, don't worry. He doesn't say that. He says... Why are you fearful? Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? You see, they had a faith there. Don't say they didn't. Of course they did. They believed and they were sure that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They were following him and they'd left all to follow him. But in their faith there was that fear which was undermining that complete rest, that peace. You get it? That peace, that when the trial came, they saw it from all the wrong angle. And the Lord says, no, you need more faith. That's your problem. You need to have a purer faith. You don't realize that. Do you think that Satan would actually succeed in that when he attacks the work of God? I mean, no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. They all shall sweetly obey my will. Peace. Peace. Be still. Lesson. Everyone I'm going to give you a lesson from been helpful to me. You look at that boat, you look at their fears, you look at their thoughts. When Satan attacks the work of God, never fear. He will not overthrow it. That's the lesson. He will not. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. No, not just in a general sense. Put it in the particular sense. When God, when Satan attacks the gospel to stop it, he will not succeed. He'll never extinguish the light. That's the lesson. Number one. Then number two, Paul, 2 Corinthians 7. He comes into the town of Macedonia and he says this, our flesh had no rest. In other words, he was exhausted with the battle of the Lord's work. Absolutely exhausted. Our flesh had no rest. He can't even get time to sleep. We were troubled on every side. Without, he said, there were fightings. And within, he said, there were fears. It is normal to have fears. The point is that you don't let them overwhelm you. All right? And that's what Paul confesses to that. And this is what he says. This is lovely. He says, nevertheless, the God that comforts those that are cast down comforted us you know learn that fear is very real but so is the comfort of God 
Fear is very real, but so is the comfort of God. And when I looked at that word comfort, it, it's lovely. Literally, it means the God who calls us and sits down near. Isn't that lovely? In your trouble, in your fears, in your doubts, whatever it is, there's a God who calls and who desires to sit down near. The God that comforts those that are cast down comforts us. And so, one enemy, one impurity, fear. Be careful with fear, what you do with it, all right? And then you come to the point of doubt, fear, doubt. They can sort of go hand in hand a little bit. One sort of generates the other. And you see in Peter, the Apostle Peter, remember they went out and again they were going across the lake, the disciples were, and the Lord wasn't with them, but they looked in the evening light and there they saw what was almost an apparition. They saw Jesus coming to them, walking on the water. And Peter calls out and he says to them, he says to him, Lord, if it is you, um, you know, call me and I'll come to you. And the Lord says very clearly to Peter, come, right? Peter steps over the side of the boat, defying all the natural laws of gravity, upheld by the hand of a, by the supernatural hand of an almighty God, he walks on the water towards the Lord Jesus. Then it says, he saw the wind and the waves that were boisterous, the opposing forces, right? And it says, he starts to sing. Right? And he cries out, Lord, save me. Right? Now, what the Lord says to him is, Oh, Peter, O oh, ye of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? You get that? Doubt. It undermined him at the wrong time and he was going to sink like a ball. <laughs> because of well, he looked at the opposing forces and he realized his own inadequacy and his own frailty as a human being to be walking on water. And the Lord says, Ah, yes, but the trouble was you doubted. That's the trouble. Now, the word there is wavered. I like that. You look at this and you look at that and you're sort of, whoa. You're wavering, you're halting between two opinions. You're like a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. He gets nothing from the Lord, says James. That's what he means. Or you pray, but you've got sort of two minds about it all. You know, if but perhaps perchance. Well, all right, you'll get no answer until you're steadfast and you're immovable and you're firm in where you're going and what you're doing. And that's what he's saying here. You have wavered and he's sunk. The lesson is this. When the Lord speaks to you, go forward in faith, nothing doubting. All right? The Lord said to Peter, come. All he had to do was keep looking and just straight walking. But when the Lord speaks, go forward in faith, nothing doubting. Do not look at the opposing forces or at the weakness of self within, but with your eye on the Lord, answer that word. Come and be gone Every doubt. Doubt is a serious enemy of the servant of God and it'll be a serious enemy to all of us here as day by day we seek to serve the Lord. Doubt will get you. Do you remember John the Baptist? I mean, what a man was he in the service of the Lord? Coming out crying, you know, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Repent, the Messiah's coming. Make yourself ready for the coming of the Lord. And the Lord comes and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, the bearer away of the sin of the world. This is he of whom I spake, he says. This is the one. God told me if I saw the Holy Spirit descending as a dove upon this person, it was he, it was him, and I know it's him. Now he gets put in jail. 
John Baptist gets put in jail for 13 odd months under Herod. And, you know, it's not good in jail. <clears throat> and he starts to have lots of... You can tell he's, he's getting quite under the weather, as it were, under the strain of it all. And I, please, I'm not criticising him. I don't go around criticising people in the Bible whose failures we read because you'll find out that you wouldn't have done any better. You'd have done a lot worse. Try throwing yourself in Herod's prison for 13 months after having such an amazing ministry and seeing how you feel, maybe. Because see, Satan gets in at those times. He gets in. He can see the opportunity. And, you know, this glorious great man of God, the greatest of the prophets, he says, uh, oh, sends a message to the Lord. He said, Lord, are you really the one that's to come? Or are we to wait for another? You can see what's in his mind. It's, oh, dear. It's all gone pear-shaped, if you get what I mean. Satan's got into that man. There's a doubt in John's mind, just a little doubt. And he says, that goes to the Lord. This, uh, one of his disciples does to, get, to tell the Lord this. Well, the Lord says... First of all, he say, you go back and give John proofs. He doesn't say, oh, that's disgusting. But no, you just tell him what you see. You see the blind, they see. You see the dead, they're raised. The lame, they walk, and etc., etc. Go and give him the proofs, and that'll calm his soul. But just tell him something else from me, will you? There's a wonderful blessing. There's a wonderful blessing for faith. Blessed is he who is not offended in me. John, you stood up in an almost apostate Israel, and you cried out the name of the Lord. That's what you did. You said, look, the Lamb of God, look, there he is. Oh, look at him as he walked. He pointed him out, he said. You did that. Well, carry on like that, because there's a wonderful blessing for you, John, as you live by faith in the darkest of your circumstances. Right? See, what had happened was this, under the pressure... John had actually forgotten the blessings and the proofs and the helps of the past. Now, this is incredibly important, incredibly. You know, when you look at what he was saying and what he had seen and what he'd be blessed by, etc., 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 and then uh, there's this sort of thing coming in that's causing problems with the doubts, you see, right? And the lesson is this. This is what he'd done. He had forgotten for a moment the past in the pressure of the present. And Satan, ever ready to attack the believer at their lowest moments, came in with a seed of doubt and tried to sow it. Let me just say this. Whatever pressure you're going through, any time, wherever you're at, at wit's end corner, in the heat of your present necessary tribulation or trial, right, do not forget the goodness of God in the past. Very important. We do. We have good times and great blessings and we're thrilled. And the minute we hit trouble, we sort of forget all the good things and the blessings that God gave you in the past. Look, don't interpret the present through the present. Remember the goodness of God in the past. Read your Psalms and you'll find over and over in the Psalms, the psalmist constantly goes back to remind himself of the faithfulness of God in the past. And as Moses gets to the land of promise after 40 years, you know, and Israel's going to go into the land in Deuteronomy, he says, before you step over that Jordan and Joshua takes you in, remember, he says, remember this day all the way the Lord your God led you in trial, trouble, hunger, thirst, and tribulation. Remember that. Remember the faithfulness of God in the past as you go forward to fight in the future and to dispossess the land. 
So important. I, I find this a real problem at times. We think things about us things. We say things about situations at the time, which are a total contradiction to the faithfulness of God in the past. I must admit, one of the best things I, I ever did in, in times gone by was to keep a diary. Now, I'm not much good at keeping diaries. I really am not. But I bought a five-year one, and I may have told you before, and the, on each year there was, on each page there was, you know, that much for a year, next year, next year, next year, right? And you just pretend, like, let's say I'm doing it today, and I'm going to, something significant happened in your life or some verse of scripture that helped you, and, and you just wrote it down. And here we are, and May, April, May, two, April 2023. And as I write it, I look up, oh, five years ago, 2018, and I see an incident and a verse up there. I think, I'd forgotten that. I'd just forgotten what a blessing it was to me. And I looked at that, and, I, and here I am, five years later, writing down my woes, we'll say. And five years ago, I was writing up my praises, singing my psalm, right? And down here, I was hanging my harp on the willow tree. And suddenly, it all gets changed. Don't forget the goodness of God in the past. Fear and doubt be gone. And where does fear and doubt take you? It takes you into unbelief. All right? Unbelief is another impurity mixed with your faith. You'll find it's true. There are times when you didn't believe God. You say, oh, but I do believe God. Yeah, like that father with his son, you know. Oh, I do believe, but who do help my unbelief? You've got the mixture going on there that needs to be weeded out and not allowed to grow. You might say you can't have unbelief and faith but look, the practical effect is that that is what happens this side of heaven and the unbelief will undermine your faith. Now, do you think about Thomas? We're talking about unbelief now. Thomas, right? You say, oh, yeah, well, doubting Thomas. No, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't call it. He's unbelieving, Thomas. Did you know that? He's gone past doubt. Really, in all fairness, he has. There's fear. There's doubt, Right? But, but there's, there's real unbelief with Thomas. It's really God. You know, don't tell me Thomas didn't have a true faith. Of course he did. Read what he asked, the questions he asked in the upper room. Read what he said as they went to the cross. See how these followed him and stayed with him when all the rest left and only the 12 stayed. Was Thomas was one of them. Oh, yes, he's got a faith all right. But he's got a problem too. <laughs> I mean, he comes and he gathers with the disciples there in the upper room, it would have been, too. Back in the upper room. He's sitting with his disciples there and he's hearing this incredible story. They're saying, Thomas, do you know what happened last week? It was incredible. Jesus himself came and stood in the midst. And you know what, Thomas? He's raised from the dead, Thomas. And he said to us, receive Holy Spirit. He empowered us. And then he said, as my father has sent me, even so send I you. And he sent us. And he stood there and he said, Peace be unto you. And he imparted that calmness of soul which can only come from a vision of the risen Christ. He said, Thomas, look what happened. You know? Look what happened. What does Thomas say? He doesn't say, well, I doubt that. He scratched his chin and sort of had to work it out. He said, I will not believe. Right? He says, actually, I want more. Can you imagine that? He wants more. He's got the word of the Lord to start with, because the Lord said before he died he would rise again the third day. He never said it once. He said it several times to them over the last six months in particular. He's got the witness of the fact of the resurrection. He's got the witness of it. I mean, that the tomb's empty. Go and have a look. 
Peter says, Peter said, I saw it. James says, I saw it, the empty tomb. The women said, we saw it, the empty tomb. So he has got the clear word of the Lord, the clear witness of the fact. He has got the appearance of a risen Christ. And around him he's got ten men bursting with joy and rejoicing in the fact that they've seen the risen Lord. And what happens? Unbelief cripples him. He just sits there stonkered, if you like. He hasn't, he hasn't, you don't hear him praising, thanking. No, I will not believe. Now look, when the Lord speaks to you, right, and he clearly shows himself, when he shows himself and whatever, be ever ready to believe, to obey, and to rejoice. Take and deal viciously with unbelief that comes in because unbelief will cripple your faith. You will find there are times in your life when you really quite despair. Or you may find times in your life where you think, well, this isn't going to work out. And then there comes with a time the hand of God and he makes everything plain and straight. And you've got to look back on yourself and say to yourself, I didn't believe that this would happen. I did not believe God. You know, Paul said, he said, but I believed God. I heard a preacher once and he said that was the greatest theological statement that the Apostle Paul ever made in all his life. I don't know whether that's not stretching the case of it, but, but you get his point. I believed God. Deal with unbelief. You see, you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, don't you? Wonderful story, the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory of the Lord is seen up there with those three disciples. But when they come down from the mountain and they get down onto the bottom where the other disciples are, there's a real typical problem and a turmoil. There's a man and his son, and the son is possessed by a demon. One says he's a lunatic, and then the other's translated he was an epileptic, and somebody else, and another gospel says he was possessed of a spirit. Clearly the devil was soundly at work in the life of this poor son who was cast into the flames, he was foaming at the mouth, he was thrown on the ground, he couldn't. He was forever and forever in this state and they could do nothing with him. And the father comes up to the Lord and he says, oh, he says, Master, he says, my son, look at him. And he says, you know, your disciples could not deal with him. They couldn't do anything about it. And the Lord, of course, just steps in, and in his grace he does exactly what's needed at the moment. Without any more details on it, the disciples came to him afterwards and said, why couldn't we do that? Why could we not do what you just did? And the Lord's answer is twofold, but the one I want to get to, he said straight to them, because of your unbelief. All right? Because of your unbelief. The lesson is this. Unbelief mixed with your faith will limit your usefulness in the work of God. It can cripple you, like Thomas did, and the Lord will have to step in and put his hand on you if he means to in a very special way, as he did with Thomas and his grace. But if you've got unbelief mixed with your faith, <clears throat> it will limit you in the work of God, and you'll find there's a work you could be doing, but you can't do it because of your unbelief. Sometimes, in the prospects that lie ahead, there's only one if about failure. You know? 
There is an if. Just as the father said to the Lord, if you will, you can make my son whole and clean and sort it out. And the Lord said, if I will, if I can, if I can. Do you hear me this morning? Do you think God's not able? He actually said, the only if in this equation is if you can believe. Oh, he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You can see the man, he's like you and I. He's got all these, this impurity is messing things up. And he said, I do, but I don't. I want to, but I can't. I am, but I aren't. <laughs> and so it goes on. Now, you see, it will hinder your usefulness in the work of God. And the only if very often in the, in the moving forward in the work of God, in the testimony of God, in the work of the God in this church, in the spreading of the gospel from this church, in the building of the, of the kingdom of God via the means of ourselves in this gathering. The only if is if you'll believe. Sorry, but it's true. Never let it hinder you in the work of God. The only if is if you can believe. One final impurity. <clears throat> we've had fears and we've had doubts and fears and unbelief. You know, there's one other little thing I want to just address and leave it at that. There is such a thing in your faith where you lack knowledge. That's a big thing. You can lack knowledge, and Satan will attack you because you don't have the knowledge you need about your faith in order to defend it or to rest on it in peace. You can lack knowledge. You have to have knowledge to have faith. Yet faith is not just knowledge. Oh no. Faith is something divine and supernatural that enables you to receive all the blessings of God. But it's more than just knowledge. But there's a component of knowledge. You see, in your faith, there is all sorts of components, really. There's a moral component. There's a spiritual component. There is an emotional component. And there is the component of knowledge or information. Faith is not just one of these things. Faith embraces all of these things. You must have knowledge. I often, I've listened over the years to many a preacher preaching to people, or even in the open air preaching to people and telling people, you've got to get saved, you've got to get saved, you've got to get saved. And I feel like going out there and disguising myself and saying, huh, what does that mean? I don't even know what you mean. I haven't got information. Well, it means you're a sinner. A sinner? Really? What's a sinner? Well, you've broken the law. The law of God. Tell me more about this. I need more information. You need to repent. Why? You get the idea. No information. Not inadequate information. See, faith is more than just having knowledge, but you must have the knowledge because you must believe. And if you're going to believe, and I mean in all your circumstances of life, if you're going to believe, you need to be believing in something. And the more you know of the something, the stronger becomes your belief. Very important. Very important. <clears throat> you have faith in Christ. Well, I tell you what, the more you know of him, the stronger gets your faith. Now, isn't that the story of your life? <laughs> he grew sweeter as the days went by. And your faith and trust grew stronger and stronger as you came to know him better and gained a further knowledge of him, his goodness, his grace, his faithfulness, his truth, his unchanging character and nature. Oh, it made you so much stronger. Paul says, I know whom I have believed, and I am fully persuaded. You get that? 
My faith has been sorted out, as it were, through all my trials and tribulations and troubles and fears and doubts, and I've got the true Christ. You have faith in the person in whom you are believing, you have faith in the work that he has done. All right? The more you understand about the work the Lord Jesus Christ did in your salvation, the more certain you will become of your salvation. See, many a time we have fears and lack assurance. You must know all about that. I've been there for, I was there for many years, wondering if, did I say it right? Did I do it right? Have I trusted properly? Did I pray properly? Did I this? Did I that? Did I, I just totally misunderstood the whole business. I actually thought it depended on how I got some faith together and put my hand out and hung on tight. But I'm glad it didn't depend on that at all, right? You will, you will as it were, cure your lack of assurance when you read the word of God and understand more fully what Christ did in securing your salvation and what God did in saving you. How do we get rid of these doubts? How do we get rid of these fears? How do we get rid of the unbelief? How do we get rid of this sense of lacking assurance? You get it very clearly by understanding this book. Please, please read this book. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This is the intimate link and origin, as it were, of the faith which links you to God that enables you to live for God, to rest in God, to lean on God, to work for God, to labor till the day is done. Beautiful, isn't it? It's very beautiful. So you take this book and the best advice, everybody's asking, what's the best advice for young people? Simple. Read your Bible. Ah, uh-uh. study your Bible. Study your Bible. Read it. Study your Bible. Get to know its truths. Get to know its message. Get to know what it means. You want a strong faith. You must read it. You must study it. You must, I'm going to use that word again, marinate in it. All right? You let it be your meditation day and night. You say, well, I've got to think of other things sometimes. Yeah, that's not what the verse means. The verse means you bring it into every circumstance of life. Yes, you do ponder about it as well, but it's there all the time before you, the law of the law. So from these things, what do we learn? We just learn very plainly and simply that trials, as Peter says, must needs be. Because it is that that means by which God uses to drive us into Christ. To make us want to listen more carefully. To lean more fully. To trust more holily. And to obey more readily. That's what it does. It needs be that our faith may be strengthened, that that can be, and we get driven through trials into his word, looking for strength, looking for guidance, looking for understanding. And you will get to a point in your life where you will realize the hand of God on you from time to time, and you will come to bless him for it. And like the old hymn says, though long and hard the road, faith's eyes are on the goal. He uses trials for my good and thus preserves my soul. Isn't that incredible? He uses trials for my good and thus preserves my goal. Fear becomes less. 
my soul. Doubts disappear, unbelief gone. The word gains a greater place in your heart and understanding and God uses trials for that end. Closing with James 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into temptations. I don't know, I'm not being good at that. Have you been very good at that? Eh? Well, maybe the Lord will bless us this morning and show us, just reveal from the scripture just what they're intended for and the blessing that can come from it. Because he says, knowing that what's going on, you count it all joy when you fall into many divers, many kinds of troubles, knowing that what's going on, it's the trial of your faith. Well, may the Lord bless us and lift us again to better realms above and to move forward through the present in the light of a glorious future, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are bowed gratefully again because we are found again the comfort of the scriptures and through the comfort of the scriptures we have been given hope. And we humbly ask, Lord, that you would show us our impurity, the impurities in in our faith. And Lord, help us to be rid of them as we confess our own frailty, our own fears and doubts and at times unbelief. We pray In mercy, O Lord, deal with us, O Father, as your child and make us more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. There from glory into glory till finally we are at glory itself. O may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit again be our portion and our blessing in that worthy name. Amen.